A person who identifies as trans is someone whose sense of self in relation to their gender does not align with the gender they were assigned at birth. Trans people are often some of the most misunderstood and mischaracterized individuals under the LGBTQ umbrella. However, recently, there has been a surge of movies and television shows dedicated to portraying the lives of trans people. Think The Danish Girl, Amazon's Transparent series, and even Orange is the New Black, starring Alabama's own Laverne Cox. Yet, even with the trans experience seeing more screen presence, there is still so much to be done to ease the difficulty of being trans in America, especially in Alabama, where prejudice and discrimination are alive and well. I'm Rick Lewis, and you're listening to Way Out, the show about LGBTQ people living in Alabama. In this episode, Anastasia learns more about the trans experience and challenges trans people face, and meets people that are working to make those challenges less daunting. This is Give and Take. During our last episode, we heard a personal story about HIV and AIDS in Alabama, and I wanted to look deeper into the current HIV landscape in the state. Since the HIV outbreak several decades ago, lots of research and amazing treatment has been developed, but HIV and AIDS are still prevalent in the U.S., and especially prevalent in the South. According to research by AIDS VU, the cities with the highest rates of new infection are all in the South, from Miami to Atlanta to New Orleans. And while the American South is home to less than 40% of the U.S. population, it's home to more than half of all new HIV diagnoses and deaths. HIV also disproportionately impacts people of color. In Alabama, the rate of black males living with an HIV diagnosis is over five times the rate of white males. The rate of black females living with HIV is over 10 times the rate of white women. The rate of Latino males living with HIV is almost twice the rate of white males, and the rate of Latino women living with it is almost three times the rate of white women. HIV also continues to disproportionately impact the LGBTQ community, specifically trans folks. I sat down with Alabama native Shanoia Bryant to talk more about this. Shanoia is a professor at the University of Alabama and is a doctoral candidate in sociology. She holds a master's in public health from the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Shanoia became an advocate for the queer community early on in her life. My godfather is a gay-identified man, right? So I kind of grew up around gay men and house culture and drag and all these things. And so also growing up in church, right, which I think at the time, African-American community, there's still so much stigma around sexual minority um, identity. There's still so much stigma even around like sex and HIV that I would also see how um, people I loved who were LGBT identified, how they would get treated in these spaces, right? And I didn't necessarily understand how we could have a God who is encompassing of all things and loving of all folks, yet discriminating and treating this one group of people who I love so very badly, right? So I think there was a part of like just me growing up with that as my norm, but also another side of me that was consistently my norm, which was going to church with my you know, grandmother every Sunday, like how that part of me was kind of juxtaposed to what I felt and I believe, and I think it started my activism very early. Before we get deep into today's episode, here's an important explanation from Shanoya about the difference between sex and gender. Sex is more tied to biology. What anatomy do you have? Do you have a penis? Do you have a vagina? Do you have XXXY, right? Those types of things. When we're talking about gender, we're talking about the cultural constraints that we put on someone 
based on whatever anatomy they have, right? And for trans folks, oftentimes whatever cultural constraints we've placed on the parts that they're born with don't necessarily match, right? So sex and gender aren't the same thing. Sometimes they're used interchangeably, but definitely not the same. There's a beautiful trans community all across the U.S., all over the world, and right here in Alabama. But according to the National Transgender Discrimination Survey conducted in 2011, trans people of color have exponentially high rates of HIV. Almost 25% of trans African Americans are HIV positive, and over 10% of trans Latino folks are HIV positive, as compared to the less than 1% rate for the entire U.S. population. Shinoya believes a lot of this has to do with not only the rates of poverty and unemployment for the trans community, but the discriminatory practices of health facilities. We're also finding trans women reporting at significantly higher rates than some of their other counterparts is this discriminatory or the discriminatory practices when we get into these healthcare facilities and institutions, everything from the misgendering to medical students not necessarily being trained to work with um, gender non-conforming or queer unidentified bodies, right? Like how does that fit into the curriculum? And then also even with knowing that those populations, LGBT populations, tend to be disproportionately impacted by things like poverty and unemployment, right? So how are they even getting access to services or access to information when we've seen historically like there's been discriminatory practices and barriers that have kept them from that? To learn more about the trans community and the challenges they face, I went to Birmingham to talk to Darinisha Duncan. Simply, in my mind, this given body part doesn't align how I feel. You know, how I present myself, I don't think my body part align up with me. So I'm feeling like not so much of different, but feeling like I'm incomplete. It's a struggle that a lot of trans folks deal with because if it's messing with you daily because you have to wake up, you have to look at yourself in the mirror, you have to look at, you know, your body parts. So that's the reason why you feel the difference within yourself. But it's nothing that's saying that you're crazy, that you shouldn't exist or, oh, you need to be locked away. No, it's just saying that I feel different on the inside than what I appear to be on the outside. Derenisha is from a neighborhood in Birmingham called Norwood. She was assigned male at birth and knew she was trans from a very early age. Now she's the executive director of the Take Resource Center, a place for trans women of color in Birmingham to get connected to resources they need. She founded the center a few years ago. I'm willing to help anybody, but I'm specifically targeting my community because we're the ones that's being left out. We're the ones that are not getting the resources. We're the ones that are being discriminated against. I think simply to live as a trans woman in Alabama is very hard. We're not supposed to make it further than the next person. Like we got two strikes against us already. We black and then we originally was saying as male and then we transitioned to female. So that makes it even harder. It was after living through many challenges, obstacles and instances of discrimination that Derenisha decided to create a space for women like her in Birmingham. You know, I got to create a support group for my community. I got to get trans women together, see how they feel it, see, am I the only person experiencing these things, or let's just have a conversation. Basically, it's just a one-stop shop. 
if you in need, you know, you're homeless, you got something going, we got something here to help you out. We got the resources to work with you all. The center is an old, small building in northeast Birmingham that holds a lot. There's a living room, a room to host workshops, a washer and dryer, a closet of donated clothes, and more. And Darinisha's passion keeps people coming in. Roughly, give or take, in and out of the center, 15 to 25 um, trans women in and out of here doing some different service daily. I think the important piece of Take Resource Center is being able to connect with communities, someone that look like you, understand your struggles, and that can connect with you on all different levels, no matter what, because we're not here to look down on anyone. You know, we don't have front desk staff that's sitting there, don't understand what it means to be trans or see that you're trans and going back and telling someone else that, hey, it's a trans person out here. Like we don't have none of those barriers that are affecting us from doing our work to the fullest. Deranisha lived through many challenges before she started the center, from the time she was a child. I guess growing up as a child, it was kind of like a lot of challenges and barriers um, facing not knowing who I really was and was feeling different on the inside and trying to navigate the system to see where I fit it on the gender spectrum. People weren't accepting of her or the way she presented herself on a daily basis, and she was bullied by lots of her classmates. Mostly people in the neighborhood, especially other peers at school, classmates or whatever, you know, you're a sissy, you're a faggot, especially like the boys. I think that most of the girls was understandable because they just looked at it just having a friend or someone that they can conversate with or someone that they can find that can hold their deepest secrets. Once I graduate from high school, I don't care how nobody take me, I don't care what you think about me, but I'm going to do this. I want to be a woman. And the place where she finally found true acceptance was in the entertainment industry, performing as a drag queen in clubs around Birmingham. So I got into the drag entertainment business back, maybe I was 18 and a half, I graduated. Her face lights up when she thinks back to the times she had on stage. Oh my God, I don't know. It's so many words that I can use to describe the industry. It was amazing, it was spectacular, it was beauty, it was glam, it was you name it. And then it made you into what I felt like a nightlife celebrity. It gave you the opportunity to be that person that your LGBTQ peers looked up to. They knew you was coming out there to burn that show. They knew you was coming to entertain it, to entertain them. And also, it was a financial game. When she began her career in entertainment, she joined the House of Stars. It was the first place she found a community of people who embraced her as she was where she learned to be herself and to do things like put on makeup and do her hair. I was so eager to learn how to do what they call good drag and be in that perfect silhouette and give them this female, you know, illusion. And it wasn't easy because it took me almost six and a half or maybe seven months before I was able to even much know how to put on like Casilla and foundation and just basically put on some powder, not saying how to do my Abby. You know, I still had to go and let my alternative grandmother Yasmin, you know, do my Abby because that's what makes the look. 
The woman she mentions here, her alternative grandmother, Yasmin, runs the House of Stars, and she was very important to making Derenisha feel supported and comfortable being herself. I tell folks, when you come out and you become open with your life, a lot of times your family members don't understand, they don't know what you feel, they can't even much tell you the words that will comfort you. So you basically have to go out and hopefully you find the right chosen family that's willing to work with you. So lucky enough, I was able to become a part of the legendary House of Stars that we're known you know, all across the United States. It's a very amazing house. The mother that runs it here in Birmingham, Alabama, which is Yasmin. Um, Yasmin, she's amazing. She have taught me. She have invested in time. And she have built this woman, Derenisha, and not, you know, giving up on me at damn time, but always encouraging me. In 2007, Derenisha legally changed her name and started applying for work outside of entertainment. I made up in my mind that I don't care what nobody say, I'm going to start applying for jobs, you know, as Derenisha Danae Duncan. And so um, I went out and applied for a couple jobs, of course. It was hard because I didn't get some of the jobs that I knew I qualified for. And I just knew then that this was a barrier and it's a challenge being a trans woman because people are not accepting you as women and they're making it hard for us. It was during this time of being turned away again and again at job interviews that Derenisha faced the employment discrimination that so many trans women face. From housing to workplace, that discrimination is very heavy for trans folks because of the gender marker law here that you can't get your gender marker changed unless you have had gender reassignment surgery and they want the actual letter from the surgeon. On the books in Alabama state law, you have to have a letter from a surgeon confirming you've gotten gender confirmation surgery to have the gender marker on your state ID changed. Now, gender confirmation surgery takes a lot of forms. There are operations on the face, chest, and genitals that could qualify someone for a legally accepted gender marker change. Lots of the public thinks that all trans people have had some sort of surgery, but that's simply not the case. A survey from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that there were 3,256 gender confirmation surgeries in 2016. About 92% of those were on the chest, about 7% were facial, and less than 1% were genital. To be clear, many trans people don't want to get surgeries. There's a long recovery period for them, and chances of complications are high. Some opt to change the way they dress, the way they present themselves, and that's enough. Not everybody wants to medically transition. Everybody determines their own transition. People try to police what a trans woman look like or a trans man look like or whatever. You don't know because it's all different type of people in the world. I'm a person that decided to medically transition, but everybody don't desire to take their body through those type of chemically transitioning ways because people can feel like they perfectly fine how they are, and they are able to live how they is, and don't care what nobody say. But the greatest hindrance to getting any of these surgeries is cost. It costs upwards of $30,000 to have genital surgery, between twenty-five dollars and $60,000 to have facial feminization surgery, and five dollars to $10,000 to get breast augmentation surgery. 
This is a huge cost for anyone, especially for trans women, because the rates of poverty and unemployment stemming from discrimination and lack of educational resources are really high in the trans community. According to GLAAD, 29% of trans people live in poverty, and the unemployment rate is triple the normal rate and quadruple the normal rate for trans people of color. Here's Darinisha. You go in, you're applying for a job. Yeah, honey, you can look the part and you appear and got a legal name change. You know, these people, they want to question and stuff and they want to get the reading the ID and then they look and it got the opposite gender mark on it. Then here's the flag. You know, that happened with me with one job. Oh, ma'am. I mean, something wrong with your ID, and I'm like, what's wrong with my ID? And she's telling me that the gender mark, and I'm just like, duh, you know, like, why in the hell are you looking at that, you know? I just wish the gender marker wasn't even much on the IDs. Some of the ladies I have dealt with um, in trying to help get jobs, they have went to places, and basically the employer is saying they can't take a risk. That's not right. You're not even much giving this person the chance to have an interview. you coming in, you think that you're clocking just because you have this radar of what trans look like, you know, or what a woman should look like and be like, oh, you know, I don't want to take this chance. So you're not even much having an open conversation with this person and even much see what they can bring to your company, bring to your team. So you've got trans women that are educated, that are trying to get on their feet, and they're not being hired. And there's also a great number of people who identify as trans who haven't been able to finish school, who haven't felt supported in their educational settings because of bullying and harassment from family, peers, and the community in general. You have trans women that are out there that have furthered their education, but you have a lot of trans women that have dropped out in the ninth and 10th grade, don't even much have a GED. I've serviced quite a few ladies here in the center that have been high school dropouts. I was dealing with one lady that was actually bullied in school. The mother didn't know how to advocate for counselors and, you know, people did not even much know how to protect or had policies in place for this trans student. And it was very sad for her participating and coming to take to see how she was struggling with trying to go to classes, fighting every other day at the bus stop or whatever. And I think that it's very sad that you can't get your education and stay focused without someone trying to make you feel less than. And it's very hard for the youth to even stay focused in school, especially if they have a family member that's not supporting them, they're not being supported at home, and it makes the child feel indifferent. And what you just push the child clean out to the streets, and then they have to go into survivor mode. But only thing you can do is resort and be stuck in the sex work industry. Sex work ain't no underground industry in the United States because sex work is simply prostitution. It's the oldest profession in the book, but you just have to make sure things are coded because everything is so criminalized. You know, like, oh, if you're doing sex work, oh, we're going to put you in jail. Why would I put you in jail for doing sex work? You ain't killing nobody. You're trying to survive. So that means that the system have failed us as a whole due to the fact that if you think that sex work should be criminalized and you don't have any jobs or any other resources to link these folks to, you're not doing your job. You making sure that the judicial system is gaining 
cash bonds and jail time off of these ladies, but you refuse to give them resources. You refuse to give them job readiness training. You refuse to connect them with a GED program or trade program. But better yet, you still ride in the same area where they're working it just to put them in jail. That's crazy. Something else that many trans women are forced to resort to is the black market, a system online and on the street where women try to get what they need to transition because, as we mentioned before, many can't secure employment and don't have health insurance, so they can't afford these things that are so essential to who they are. When it comes to black market, of course, honey, you're going to have to get what you're going to have to get. So I just think that not having the correct resources here in the South has forced a lot of folks to black market. I've had one of my good girlfriends to die from black market silicone, but I have swallowed plenty of hormones from black market, you know, just getting online, Googling, seeing where you can um, order them from. But it's so much of a risk for, you know, stroke, heart attacks, and kidney failure, whatever. So I think that's the reason why a lot of the online pharmacists have really came down and pulled their stuff off the shelf where you can't order off land because, honey, back in the days, honey, I just got on there and I went to town with ordering hormones. I ordered maybe like a year's supply of hormones. I had so, like, they didn't have no regulations on it, but now it's a regulations on it that you can't even much buy hormones on land. To hear more about the medical challenges faced by the LGBTQ community, specifically the trans community, we turn to Will Rayner, the executive director of the Magic City Wellness Center in Birmingham, Alabama. Stay with us. I think that what we're doing is a little bit unprecedented because in the state of Alabama, the Magic City Wellness Center is the only openly advertised LGBTQ-friendly medical primary care office, the only one. Rainer's been working with Birmingham AIDS Outreach, the Wellness Center's parent organization, for years now. But he's only a few months into the director position, and he's incredibly excited about the work being done at the center, the only one of its kind in Alabama. We're talking about a group of individuals. Their health care has been shunned by providers themselves. An individual may have made an attempt to go see a primary care physician, let's say, 10 years ago, and that person may have an appearance that triggers other people to know that person is a homosexual or that person is trans just because of the way they look. And when they show up to that doctor's office, they're going to be judged. They're not going to get the same type of treatment. So that person's never going to go back to the doctor. That individual is going to forego health care and go down a path of, of just having an unhealthy lifestyle because they're not getting the care that they had because of the way they've been treated previously. So the Magic City Wellness Center is here to remedy that. We are going to be professional. We're going to give you quality health care. But we're not going to be afraid to ask the questions that need to be asked to the community when they come here, they know that they're not going to be judged. The center's existence is critical not only for the LGBTQ community in Birmingham, but all across the state. 
we saw a lot of rural populations in Alabama as well. People feel comfortable coming to Birmingham because it is kind of like a big bubble as opposed to the rest of the state. And the center does what it can to subsidize care. Right now, visits to the center are covered. Will says that one of the biggest challenges the center faces is hormone replacement therapy, or HRT. And he's heard stories about black market medicine, like the one told by Darinisha. You can't see what's going on inside your body if you're just taking medication that's given to you off the street. Without going to a medical professional, you are just kind of like blindly giving yourself medication. But what if you are taking more than you need in five years? That's going to cause some crazy issue to occur when if you would have gone to a medical professional and you would have been on hormones with their help and their monitoring, it could have just been a difference in like a dosage thing and you could have a normal life as opposed to if you just took it off the streets and, you know, you did something to your body. Right now, one of the biggest barriers is health insurance agencies not covering the costs of medications. We are doing everything we can to try to help get patients' HRT medications covered. Sometimes we run into the barriers, just health insurance, things that we can't change. But I say all of this because I think that in the next couple of years, all of that will change. It's just, it can't happen overnight. The Magic City Wellness Center exists to be a part of that change. Currently, HRT can cost anywhere from one to two and a half thousand dollars a year. That's for the medication itself, but there are other costs necessary for treatment too. They come here, we do the office visit, and then we bill that claim. Most of the time the insurance picks up the claim because they're here for an HRT visit. We do the lab work. Now, the lab work is a separate claim in itself from the lab, and then finally take the prescription to the pharmacy. Just because they cover the office visit doesn't mean that they're going to cover that prescription. Another hindrance in the billing of insurance is something Darinisha mentioned earlier, the complicated nature of legal name changes and gender markers. You have somebody who maybe started the program as Jane and has transitioned and is successful and is now Joe. If Joe were to get a bill, I would like that bill to say Joe on it and not Jane. And then when you deal with insurance, unless that name is legally changed, it has to have the original name, name that you were given at birth. We can't fix that from the insurance. But what we can do is with the lab, that's what we're working on. If patients get a bill from the lab, that's not coming from the insurance. Maybe there's a way their system can see that this is Joe. Those are the things we're really trying to do that are challenges, but nobody else is doing them. So I don't feel like we're failing. We are just learning what it's taking to produce the type of quality healthcare for the individuals we are focusing on. I want to end this episode with a few closing thoughts from the people we met today. If you are a general practitioner and you have gone into the study of medicine to help people, yet you will not give the same quality professional healthcare to a certain individual, if they're an LGBTQ plus individual, then I don't feel like you're really fulfilling your mission as a medical professional. You have created a climate where there are people who would rather go take something off of the street than rather go see you. And that's on your shoulders. That is on you. 
No one wants to educate themselves or support or advocate for something that don't directly affect them. And that's not right. That's just like me going out there saying, oh, I'm sorry, I don't support people with cancer. That'll be crazy because cancer hit and it affects everybody. You know, so I just think that it's uh, conversations that people in the community should try to strengthen themselves on and keep it going. Make it an ongoing issue for everybody. Because someone's experience deviates from yours doesn't make it deviant, right? Because it looks like or it doesn't look like what the majority experience is doesn't mean that that experience deserves to be erased or made invisible. Um, If you truly believe that love is an all-powerful, ever-encompassing thing, then you should realize that love from human being to human being, no matter what that body looks like, is really all that matters. And I'm not saying you'll get, you'll jump out of your skin and have entirely different beliefs tomorrow, but a first part of that process is going to be stepping back to say, like, why do I feel the way I feel and why is not love the greatest determining factor in any of these situations that I'm considering, because ultimately it is. This piece was produced by Anastasia Titarenko and me, Rick Lewis. A big thanks to Shanoia Bryant, Darrenisha Duncan, and Will Rayner for being a part of this. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank the organizations we got to learn more about in the making of this episode, the Take Resource Center and the Magic City Wellness Center. The work that you all are doing in Alabama is so important, impactful, and courageous, and we hope to see it expand across the state. If you as a listener would like to learn more or donate to Take or the Wellness Center, please visit their websites at www.takebham.org and www.magiccitywellnesscenter.org. Our theme music is All the Colors in the World by Pottington Bear. Other music used was Stormy Blues by Arnibus, Background 3 by One Beats, and Cloudbank, Forecasting, Outmodded Waltz, and Paperboat by Pottington Bear, who also did our credits theme, Colocate. Special thanks to Dr. Rebecca Ballard, Andrew Grace, Chip Brantley, Allie Thomason, the University of Alabama Honors College, and the Sanford Media Center. If you like what you heard today, share this with someone you know. You can find our page on Facebook at Way Out Alabama Podcast. Please like, share us, and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening.